bone and sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. Hello and welcome to my study. Please come in and have a seat. All the books around you are those used as sources for our show. Uh, we'll be sharing with you tonight some interesting selections from one of these volumes, assisted as always by the housekeeper of this estate and co-host of this show, Mrs. Carswell. Hello. I suppose as I've hit some satisfying milestones, it'd be a good time to uh, mention that I'm progressing on the new book and I'm hoping that we'll be returning to our regular format for the show in a few months, perhaps in the fall. You've been in a good mood about the book. I guess I have. I, I do enjoy the writing. And, and you seem pretty happy yourself. I uh, even noticed you humming as you were working uh, the other day. I guess I have been. I'm really impressed to see you uh, out of that anxious state, all that worry about the owl. I just realized that I was making myself crazy for no reason. Those nights I stayed up listening to Strix and worrying about her sounds. The chuckling sound I was hearing. You, you really weren't yourself. Oh, no. I just didn't understand. It's funny, really. I think that's why she was laughing at how people misunderstand her. I mean, it really is funny when you look at it. Owls aren't something to fear. No. I mean, you know, whatever it takes. I'm just glad you've gotten the upper hand. That time with your mother seems to have really helped, or maybe it's the earrings? Oh, my owl earrings, yes. You can't really be afraid of something when you... It's not just wearing earrings. It's like making it a part of yourself, the thing you fear. It's funny how it works. Well, yes... It's just the same principle, the way to conquer fears, like my cousin Byron and his fear of bees. Fear of bees? In your family? Oh, yes, absolutely. Mother reminded me. It's because he was swarmed. He helped Uncle Ebert and Aunt Althea with the bee circus. And, well, you know, there were some accidents. He got stung pretty badly. I remember there were mishaps. He was swollen up to twice his size and in the hospital for a few days, maybe a week. But you know what he did when he got home? N no. It was all Mother's idea. What? Well, have you heard of bee beards? Oh, I've seen photos, the uh, guys with the... Wait, he grew... He, uh... he worked his way up to it, not right away. But, well... How is that done, anyway? It's the queen. She attracts them. You have a small cage with the queen in it and wear it under your chin. So he just wore that for a while to get used to it. Then you build up. By the time he was actually bearding, his fear was completely gone. I had no idea about the chin cages. I'd like to have one of those in my collection. Maybe an antique one. He was furious at Uncle Ebert after the accident, since it was pretty much his fault. So he quit the circus and went on tour by himself as a bee-bearder. 
He booked the same clubs as Ebert just to show him. He had a tour van all painted up with Byron the Beebearder on it and sang along to records while wearing the beard. What a strange story. So the earrings are kind of your bee beard or owl beard, as the case may be? Yes, but I'll continue building it up like Byron did. I have more stuff coming in the mail. Ah, uh, okay. I, I wonder if Byron would have any of those old cages I could buy? Well, no. He's been dead for at least 30 years. He parked his van down by the river one day and ran a hose from the exhaust pipe and, you know... Oh, dear. He didn't really get a lot of bookings, to tell the truth. It was hard. They would just book him the first time, but never the second. I mean, all he did was sing along with records. Well, that's sad. But he did get over his fear. It really did work. (laughs) Episode 112... Swan upping and other curious British customs. I am your host, Al Reidenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, examines the intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. I started the show as a way to further explore this area of intersection after writing my book. The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas, and am currently working on a related volume. Bone and Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors, who receive monthly rewards, including not one, but two short bonus episodes. And I'll have more on all that at the end of our show. For this episode, we'll be using a new book, that is uh, one from 1911, which was uh, authored by a gentleman by the name of T.F. Thistleton Dyer. It's called British Popular Customs Present and Past, illustrating the social and domestic manners of the people, arranged according to the calendar of the year. It's a sort of compendium of earlier calendar-based writings on old British folk customs compiled by other uh, antiquarians. As uh, we're entering into summer, I selected some more seasonal entries, those focusing more on uh, summer, with a few from early fall. I uh, do hope you enjoy the selections and perhaps might even be motivated to resurrect some of these celebrations in your own community, Uh, though I would assume no responsibility if you choose to follow that path. Uh, so our first custom from uh, St. John's Eve or Midsummer Eve, and no specific region is mentioned in this one. On this eve, people were, in former times, accustomed to go into the woods and break down branches of the trees, which they brought to their homes and planted over their doors amidst great demonstrations of joy to make good the scripture of prophecy respecting John the Baptist, that many should rejoice in his birth. This custom was at one time universal in England. Not so interesting, but um, in addition to the superstitious customs already mentioned, 
There was the dumb cake. To make it, to bake it, to break it. As the saying goes, and the third must put it under each of their pillows, but not a word must be spoken all the time. This being done, the diviners are able to dream of the man they love. There was the divination by hemp seed, which consisted of a person sowing hemp seed, saying at the same time, Hemp seed I sow, hemp seed I hoe, and he that is my true love come after me and mow. The lover was sure then to make his appearance. And uh, skipping ahead to Cheshire on St. John's Eve, the annual setting of the watch on St. John's Eve in the city of Chester was an affair of great importance. By an ordinance of the mayor, alderman, and common councilman of the corporation, dated in the year 1564 and preserved among the manuscripts in the British Museum, a pageant which is expressly said to be, quote, according to ancient customs, is ordained to consist of four giants, one unicorn, one dromedary, one camel, one dragon, and six hobby horses with other figures. By another manuscript in the same library, it is said that Henry Hardwar, Esquire, the mayor in 1599, caused the giants of the Midsummer Show to be broken and did not send out the devil in his feathers. And it appears that he caused a man in complete armor to go in their stead. But in the year 1601, John Ratcliffe, being mayor, set out the giants in Midsummer Show as of old. In the time of the Commonwealth, the show was discontinued, and the giants and the beasts were destroyed. At the restoration of Charles II, the citizens of Chester replaced their pageant and caused all things to be made new, because the old models were broken. Again, Charles II saves the day with the old ways returning. Uh, the next uh, section is uh, Midsummer in Ireland. Croker in his Researches in the South of Ireland, 1824, mentions the custom observed on the eve of St. John's Day and some other festivals of dressing up a broomstick as a figure and carrying it about in the twilight from one cabin to the other and suddenly pushing it in at the door. The alarm or surprise occasioned by this feat produced much mirth. At Stool, near Downpatrick, there is a ceremony commencing at 12 o'clock at night on Midsummer Eve. Its sacred mount is consecrated to St. Patrick. The plain below the mountain contains three wells to which the most extraordinary virtues are attributed. Here and there are heaps of stones, around some of which appear great numbers of people running with as much speed as possible. Around others, crowds of worshippers kneel with bare legs and feet, as an indispensable part of the penance. The men, without coats, with handkerchiefs on their heads instead of hats, having gone seven times round each heap, kiss the ground, cross themselves, and proceed to the hill. Here they ascend on their bare knees by a path so steep and rugged that it would be difficult to walk up. Many hold their hands clasped at the back of their necks, and several carry large stones on their heads. 
Having repeated this ceremony seven times, they go to what is called St. Patrick's Chair, which are two great flat stones fixed upright on the hill. Here they cross themselves and bless themselves as they step in between these stones. And while repeating prayers, an old man, seated for the purpose, turns them round on their feet three times, for which he is paid. The devotee then goes to conclude his penance at a pile of stones named the altar. Then hopefully has a few pints to reward himself after all that exertion. Our uh, next section is from Wiltshire, also on Midsummer. At Chiltern, there's a sport widely practiced by the boys, which they call egg hopping. At the commencement of summer, the lads forage the woods in quest of birds' eggs. These, when found, they place on the road distances apart in proportion to the rarity or abundance of the species of egg. The hopper is then blindfolded, and he endeavors to break as many as he can in a certain number of jumps. The universality of the game and the existence of various superstitions, combined with their refusal to part with the eggs for money, would warrant a supposition that some superstition is connected with it. And the the next one is from Devonshire, uh, and now we're in late June or July for the Paynton Fair. At this fair, the ancient custom of drawing through the town a plum pudding of immense size, and afterwards of distributing it to the populace, was revived on Tuesday last. And he's quoting from a periodical, I suppose. The ingredients which composed this enormous pudding were 400 pounds of flour, 170 pounds of beef suet, 140 pounds of raisins, and 240 eggs. It was kept constantly boiling in a brewer's copper from Saturday morning to the Tuesday following, when it was placed on a car, decorated with ribbons, evergreens, etc., and drawn along the street by eight oxen. And then to London, also in August, Formerly the municipal officials of London, in gaily decorated barges, went up the Thames annually in August for the purpose of nicking, or marking, and counting their swans. They used to land off Barnes Elms and partake of a collation. This yearly progress is commonly, but incorrectly, called swan hopping. The correct designation is shown by the ancient statutes to be swan upping and the swans being taken up and nicked or marked, a swan with two nicks indicated by his second nick that he had been taken up twice. And then on the 1st of August uh, in Devonshire, the charter for Exeter's Lamas Fair is perpetuated and dominated by a glove of immense size, stuffed and carried to the city on a very long pole, decorated with ribbons, flowers, etc., and attended with music, parish officers, and the nobility. It is afterwards placed on the top of the guild hall, and then the fair commences. On the taking down of the glove, the fair terminates, as you might have guessed. And uh, then to, uh, let's 
August 18th, and this is, uh, I think, in the north of England somewhere, on St. Helen's Day. This saint gives names to numerous wells in the north of England. Dr. Corden, in the middle of the 17th century, describing one in the parish of Brindle, says, with a certain amount of evident disgust, The vulgar people will do much resort with pretended devotion on each year upon St. Helen's Day, where and when, out of a foolish ceremony, they offer or throw into the well pins, which, there being left, may be seen a long time after by any visitor of that fountain. A similar custom was observed some years ago by the visitors of St. Helen's Well in Sefton, but more in accordance with an ancient practice than from any devotion to the saint. I think I smell a Protestant writer there. And then uh, from Lincolnshire on the 24th of August, it was customary at Croyland Abbey to give little knives to all comers on St. Bartholomew's Day. Mr. Gow, in his History of Croyland Abbey, page 73, says that this abuse was abolished by Abbot John de Wiesbeck in the time of Edward IV, exempting both the abbot and convent from a great and needless expense. This custom originated in allusion to the knife wherewith St. Bartholomew was flayed during his martyrdom. Mr. Hunter had a great number of them of different sizes found at different times in ruins of the abbey and in the river. And then over to uh, Bedfordshire on September 22nd. On this day at Biddenham, shortly before noon, a little procession of villagers convey a white rabbit decorated with scarlet ribbons to the village, singing a hymn in honor of St. Agatha. This ceremony is said to date from the year of the First Crusade. All the unmarried young women who meet the procession extend the first two fingers of the left hand, pointing toward the rabbit and saying, Gustin, Gustin, lacks a beer. Maidens, maidens, bury him here. They were supposed to receive a mental picture of their future husband upon so doing. Then to Hertfordshire on September 29th, he cites this reference first, in Brand's Popular Antiquities is the following account of a curious septennial custom observed at Bishop Stotford and in the adjacent neighborhood on Old Michaelmas Day, taken from a London newspaper of the 18th of October, 1787. On the morning of this day, called Ganging Day, a great number of young men assemble in the fields where a very active fellow is nominated the leader. This person they are bound to follow, who, for the sake of diversion, generally chooses a route through ponds, ditches, and places of difficult passage. Every person they meet is bumped, male or female, which is performed by two other persons taking them up by their arms and swinging them up against each other. The women, in general, keep at home at this period, except those of a less scrupulous character, who, for the sake of partaking of a gallon of ale and plum cake, which every landlord or publican is obliged to furnish the revelers with, generally spend the best part of the night in the fields, if the weather is fair, 
it being strictly according to ancient usage, not to partake of the cheer anywhere else. It's best they keep that sort of thing out in the fields, right? And uh, this one is out of sequence. It's from July, but I saved the best for last. Uh, it's from Worcestershire, uh, July 17th, St. Kenelm's Day. Uh, and for this one, you need to know that the word crabs here is an old term for the uh, edible fruit of the crabapple tree, not a crustacean. At Clint, in the parish of Hales Owen, a fair was formerly held in a field in which St. Kenelm's Chapel is situated. It is of very ancient date and probably arose from the gathering together of persons to visit the shrine of St. Kenelm on the Feast of the Saint, the 17th of July. On the Sunday after this fair, St. Kenelm's Wake was held, at which a curious custom was practiced called crabbing the parson, the origin of which is said to have risen on this wise. Long, long ago, an incumbent of Frankly, to which St. Kenelm is attached, was accustomed through horrid, deep-rutted, miry roads occasionally to wind his way to the sequestered depository of the remains of the murdered St. King to perform divine service. It was his wont to carry some provisions with him, with which he refreshed himself at a farmhouse near the scene of his pastoral duties. On one occasion, while at the farmhouse, having eaten up his own store of provisions, he was tempted, after he had donned his priestly habit and, in the absence of any wifely supervision, to pry into the secrets of a huge pot in which was simmering the savory dish the lady of the house had provided for her family. Among the rest, dumplings formed no inconsiderable portion of the contents. The story runs that the parson poached sundry of them, hissing hot from the cauldron, and hearing the footstep of his hostess, he, with great dexterity, deposited them in the sleeves of his vestment. She, however, was conscious of her loss, and closely following the parson to the church by her presence prevented him from disposing of the dumplings, and to avoid her accusation, he forthwith entered the reading desk and began to read the service, the acolyte beneath, making the responses. Ere long, a dumpling slipped out of the parson's sleeve and fell on the acolyte's head. He looked up with astonishment, but, taking the matter in good part, proceeded with the service. Presently, however, another dumpling fell on his head, at which he, with upturned eyes and ready tongue, responded, Two can play at that, master.' And, suiting the action to the word, he immediately began pelting the parson with crabs, a store of which he had gathered, intending to take them home in his pocket to restore the sprained leg of his horse. And so well did he play this part that the parson soon decamped amid the jeers of the old dame and the laughter of the few persons who were in attendance. And now, a bit of poetry as we close our show with Carswell's Corner. 
We've heard in this segment before from Harry Graham's Ruthless Rhymes for Heartless Homes, but several of Graham's poems in that volume went on to spawn an entire genre of verse called Little Willie Rhymes, which has been defined as light verses, including an indifferent or cheerfully inappropriate response to a gruesome act of violence in a quatrain form, which is just what we have here. It's by an anonymous but clearly gifted author. Little Willie Little Willie, once in ire, threw his sister in the fire. His mother said above her screams, he's really nicer than it seems. I hope everyone's been enjoying our show and that you might have the opportunity to leave a review. If you do, it really helps with the visibility of the program. As promised at the top of the show, I'd like to provide a bit more on the rewards of joining Bone and Sickle via Patreon. A monthly pledge of $2 provides you immediate access to hundreds of posts on our show blog in which I share little tidbits from history and folklore and horror films related to our general subject matter. Donating a mere $4 or more monthly brings you not one, but two short extra episodes. Other rewards include downloads of the show soundscapes heard under the narration, the show scripts, my Krampus book, various t-shirt and mug options, the bone and sickle candle, and unique and hand-packed mystery kits. Pledges start at $1 a month and can be cancelled at any time. And uh, we have some new subscribers we want to acknowledge this time around. So uh, thank you to Sarah Franks Allen, Gary Cockrell, and Yvonne Sharafian. And uh, thanks to Podchaser for including us in their list, Best Folklore Podcasts You Must Follow in 2023. Bone and Sickle is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer. Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening.